Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelogue, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. And I'm here in the Condé Nast podcast studios with Alex Postman, who is Traveler's Features Editor, Austin Merrill, who is an editor for Vanity Fair and the co-founder of Everyday Africa. And he also wrote for us this month. I'm here with Aaron Florio, who's an editor for Traveler, and Sherry Briggs, who's the founder of Explore Inc. Maybe Austin and Sherry, could you guys talk a little bit about what you guys do? It's relevant to the topic of the month, really, for us, which is Africa. We have our Africa issue out, and we're going to be talking about all kinds of things there. But you guys do some particular things um, with respect to Africa that go beyond magazines. What is that you, Sherry? Go ahead, Austin. <laughs> Well, I've co-founded this group called Everyday Africa, which is a collective of photographers who work throughout the continent and are trying to use photography to combat the stereotypes of that part of the world. So we're trying to show that it's not just a place of poverty and war and, and disease, but it's a place of, you know, people doing normal everyday things every day. We're trying to find a way to make that interesting. And how long have you been doing that? Uh, we started on the 1st of March, 2012, so we just turned five. Great. Congratulations. Thanks. And you've got you've got a book coming out, right? We do. The book um, comes out in late April, early May, and it is 30 of our photographers and their work spanning about 41 countries, maybe. So from all over the continent and trying to do just what I said, trying to find a way to make the mundane beautiful. Great. Sherry, what is Explore, Inc.? I started Explore about 20 years ago, and my roots were in conservation and basically trying to help foster support for human rights issues around the continent, primarily in Southern Africa, particularly in the beginning with the Bushmen or the San Kwe people of Botswana. And um, as time went on, people wanted to travel with me to go to some of these faraway places, and uh, I realized that if I was going to take them, I better have... Well, when Harvard called me, I realized they would be mostly lawyers, and maybe I should have some travel insurance for my company, so I started Explore. But our roots were in conservation and human rights. Yeah, great. What are you doing these days? What does Explore do now? You know, we still kept that balance of exposing people to deep, meaningful, life-changing experiences in Africa, but at the same time also helping them awaken to important issues from conservation to human rights issues. And um, we don't do that in a forceful way. We simply make the introduction if people want to get involved, which they often do, it's entirely through their motivation and their passion and what they connect to. Great. Alex and Aaron, this is the second year in a row that we've done a destination of the year. You know, last year it was Australia. This year it's Africa. What is it about Africa that makes this the choice this year? What's going on in Africa right now? Well, there are a few factors that led us to that decision. One is that I would say that distances have shrunk. So there are more nonstop flights than ever from particularly the East Coast of the U.S. to Africa. The new Victoria Falls Airport has made country hopping within the continent that much more seamless for travelers. And for instance, Dakar is only seven hours from JFK, which is like I, virtually flying to Paris. Yeah, yeah so, that's crazy. Um, I think I think there's a sort of a, a, a mindset shift that allows for Africa to be to feel not so far and to not be a once in a lifetime destination. At the same time, you have uh, once reliably safe countries, particularly in Europe, that aren't necessarily guaranteed so safe, and so I think a broadening of possibility for how to spend your vacation in a place that is a little less familiar. And then we just kept hearing about exciting stories and itineraries and destinations in Africa. And we met with Sherry about nine months ago, maybe, mm -hmm. last September. She unfolded a gigantic map of the continent. And we really spent, I think, four or five hours in that conference room just discussing country by country what's new, what's unfolding, what is ex newly accessible, which felt like a real shift from even five years ago. Americans have always wanted to do the safari, the sort of like, you know, the big five, like bucket list safari. But in addition to a lot of the safari destinations, well, there are places that are 
that were once sort of more restricted that are now back, like Zimbabwe. Um, a lot of people are going to Namibia. So there are places we hadn't yet covered, but at the same time, there are the cities of Africa that felt really exciting to cover. You have a rising middle class. You have emerging, growing um, art scenes, fashion scenes, food scenes. And so this felt fresh, and it felt like something that we really wanted to cover. You know, I was surprised by how much cities played a role in this because again the not to be you know stereotypical but the conventional africa trip is one that's very much out of doors on the plains and um, taking safari but you guys did a lot of work in the cities you talk a lot about cities here that are kind of up and coming or already arrived that have really thriving scenes austin you wrote about Dakar's music scene here. Maybe that's something we could touch on a little bit. Dakar, with that seven-hour flight from JFK to Dakar, is kind of accessible in an amazing way. That was surprising and enticing to me. Talk a little bit about Dakar and what's going on there these days. Dakar was the first city I ever went to on the continent in the mid-90s, and it's an exciting place. There's something about the, the, the weather there, which is frequently kind of perfect. The food's wonderful, the beaches are great, the people are tall and angular and beautiful. Um, the music scene has sort of always been exciting, even though maybe it wasn't known to a lot of us in this part of the world. I mean, obviously Yusu Endure and people like that became big names a long time ago, but more recently, uh, and the, the sort of movement that he helped to found, the Mbalik's movement, has continued to be very strong and very popular. And now in in uh, in Senegal, and especially in Dakar, there's a big hip hop scene, there's a big rap scene. And it's not just, I mean, much like here, it's not just, you know, a way of making music. It's a way of making a social statement. It's a way to comment on politics. It's a way to try to educate young people. Uh, and so these are not only popular forms of music as, as forms of entertainment, but they are deeply embedded in the sort of social fabric of the city and of the country, and it's, it's a really exciting thing. There's also a surf scene, right? There's a big surf scene. Um, I think, uh, what's the summer of 62 or Endless something? summer. I Endless think summer, yeah. yes. Endless summer. <laughs> the old surfing movie. I think you know, there was a scene there from some of the Dakar beaches, and it's done nothing but become even more popular. Uh, there's a very good break, a couple of good breaks right off of the coast near, near the city, yeah. That's great. And also, we talked a little bit about Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. You went there, right, Alex? I did. <laughs> what an interesting and complex place. I will say, um, whenever I told people I was going to Ethiopia, <laughs> they said, and this is your first trip to Africa? Yeah. It's unlikely, but I would say Ethiopia has been emerging for a long time from decades of conflict. Yeah, difficult um, history. Right? Yes, complicated history. I went because I am a total geek for traveling sort of deep into history and particularly religious history. There's a practically 2,000-year-old Christian civilization there. The Jews are mostly gone. They were airlifted to Israel in the 70s, but beautiful old churches carved right out of the rock in Lalabella in the mountains. Um, did you go and visit them? I did, yes. And you get up at sunrise and you see people walking, many of them barefoot and wrapped in shawls, just as they did have probably have done for hundreds of years. It's really fantastic. That said, it, it's a country where you definitely have to work hard for those ecstatic moments. The infrastructure is still, you know, lacking a bit. Um, the roads are being built rapidly, but... You can easily take a flight from Addis to the Simeon Mountains, which is basically like the Ethiopian Grand Canyon, really dramatic setting. And just uh, you see troops of uh, gelata monkeys, which used to be classified as baboons no longer, but they look like baboons and they're just all around you. It really was gorgeous. And they're hungry for tourism there. So you go from Addis, which is a real mix of very rapidly developing infrastructure, you, a lot of investment coming from China, a lot of modern buildings. But you also described, you know, sort of a layering of history that I thought was really interesting. You, you sort of mentioned you can kind of be in multiple decades just by going to different places. There. That is totally correct. A lot of what you see there is really sort of preserved in amber from the 1930s when the Italians occupied the country. You have these amazing old coffee shops like Tomoka Coffee, where the Italians introduced the macchiato and these 
ancient machines that are still chugging along. You have government-owned hotels. Oh, they're the, wait, they're the same machines? Well, definitely some of them are vintage, <laughs> yeah, for sure. built to last. Yes, built to last. Um, you have government-owned hotels, semi-privatized, but that feel like the 1960s. So, yes, definitely this layered sensation of ultra-modern and then also sort of mid-20th century and then truly ancient history all yeah. in one place. Yeah. One fun fact that I got from this that I, I was curious to ask you about is the calendar is seven and a half years behind yes. ours. So it's now, it's 2008 or 2009? It's 2009. 2009. Not only that, they have 13 months. Um, the 13th month is a shorter month. I don't know how many days it is. I think under 10 days. And their daily clock is different. So you start counting for midnight, what might be one. And then, but so the time is different when you're there. It really is very How does it feel? I was wondering how that feels when you're actually there. How does it affect, you know? I mean, it doesn't affect how you conduct yourself. You just have to be sure you're talking about the same time, the same day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One other place that you mentioned that we've written about before in other contexts is the Denikali Depression. Did you actually go? I didn't go. You didn't go. I'm sure Sherry's been. I was only there one time. And (laughs) at that time, I haven't been there in a long time. It was so dangerous. People were getting shot at regularly. So we didn't overstay our welcome. (laughs) That's bad. I corresponded with one of our contributors who's been there, she said it's unreal. I mean, you can you can get there safely by helicopter. It's otherwise it's a very very long drive. There are sort of luxury mobile tented camps that are set up, and then you venture into what is described as like one of the circles of hell. Well, that's it's like, like yeah, it's known as like it's, the, it's the, like, the, the it's like bubbling magma, and like yeah. it, I mean, it's but it's supposed to be so surreal. It's intensely hot. Um, but one of those sort of like once in a lifetime, can't believe it exists places and made more accessible by outfitters who will help you do it. Yeah. It's actually pretty easy to travel there now. It only takes about three hours from one of the main towns up north. So it's not as bad as it used to yeah. be. And there are those little camps which yeah. may give you a modicum of comfort. Yeah. Sherry, um, you've been doing this a long time. How have you seen the changes? Well, you know, some of the countries that we used to operate in are no longer, you know, on the route. We don't go to Libya anymore. Mm -hmm. We are not doing much in Sudan, although it's still possible to do that. Um, And there are a few favorite countries that are, are, you know, very few people want to go to. There's nothing wrong with going to Egypt, but a lot of Americans are afraid to go there. Although you're going to get the bargain of the of the millennium, and you're going to be welcome beyond your wildest imagination, and keep a lot of people that you know they basically were raised in tourism. That's their whole income. You keep them going, keep them alive. You'll be funding the maintenance of the pyramids and so on. So it's great. But so there are some negatives, obviously, but there are a lot of positives. And one of the more interesting things, there are so many dire stories that are absolutely valid about poaching. But many of the areas that um, you know I've been going to for 15, 20 years are much more alive and vibrant than they were before. Uh, we were recently in Murchison Falls in Uganda and uh, Kadepo way up north on the South Sudan border. And the first time I went there maybe 15 years ago, there were almost no animals. And now it is pumping with animals hmm. and a lot of rare species. What's brought them back? Protection, tourism. You know, it's it's expensive to go to Africa in general, but um, one thing Americans always think that if I don't get a tax write-off, I'm not making a contribution. But a third to fifty percent of the fees that you're paying to any lodge there, any major tourism lodge, are going to conservation. So you're making a great contribution, and you're not getting the tax write-off, but you're making an investment in your spiritual wealth because yeah. you're going to have, for sure, a life-transforming experience. Grumetti Reserves is featured in your uh, magazine this month. Luke Bale's property is far, far more healthy than it was 10 years ago. Um, so these these efforts to protect these last wild areas are really paying off in many places. And contrary to the doom and gloom you hear about poaching, which is all very real, many places are much better off than they were 10, 15 years ago. But that, a lot of that has to do with the fact that the governments are now paying a lot more attention to it, correct? I mean, exactly. I, I wouldn't know but uh, as much as you would, but I mean... 
I think Uganda is one country in particular that has really stepped up their efforts to preserve and conserve because the governments are sort of understanding the the benefits long term, right? And Namibia and Botswana and, yeah. you know, many, many countries, government has seen that, um, you know, unsustainable development, mining and so on, deforestation, or timber industry on a, on a uncontrolled mass scale isn't really a good long-term economic policy. And the most popular sort of alternative way to build your GDP mm-hmm. is through tourism because it has more than the effect of bringing revenue into the country. There's so many positive spin-off effects from the villagers that are employed in meaningful jobs where you know they can make very real money and they uh, have contact with international visitors from all over the world. So the, there's an educational value that is well above that of giving money to a local school, although that may be a byproduct as well. Mm-hmm. But the the fact that people are interacting on a daily level with people that grew up in villages and you know relatively minimal circumstance with minimal educations has a giant impact, a big rippling effect, and it changes the consciousness of the country. I mean, this is something Pilar uh, Guzman, our editor-in-chief, talks about from time to time, and she's been a couple times and has a piece in this month's issue as well. And she talks about the fact that, you know, I don't think that tourists and travelers realize that you're actually, by participating, you know, a lot of people feel like there's something privileged and taking advantage of by going to countries like this, but you're actually supporting the right kind of policy on the part of the government, where if you're facing a decision to increase your GNP and you're looking at, could we, you know, deforest or could we, you know, set up mining operations? Could we drill for oil? Could we have Chinese investment for those things? Or could we try to develop a robust tourism industry? The tourism industry actually leads to conservation and can be lucrative and can offset in economies that are sort of need you know, a crutch or need a boost. Well, think um, about, I mean, think about this part of the world, you know, that's the same thing is true in New York City or in the Grand Canyon or in LA. I mean, tourism is a huge part of the economies in in the West as well. So it's not, it's not so unique or so unusual for that part of the world for that to be something that's, that's driving those economies in, in a good direction. Yeah. And we don't, we, it's easy. Americans in particular can see that for the national parks. There's something that we've, we've sort of made that connection, but we haven't necessarily made that connection to other parts of the world. So it's nice that we're calling that out here. Aaron, what surprised you in working on this issue? What surprised you as you were going through? You're pretty familiar with Africa. You've been on the podcast to talk about it before. <laughs> I have, yeah. Um, I, I'm somewhat familiar. I, I don't know that it's so much anything that actually surprised me, but I think sort of talking to Alex's point earlier, what we wanted to produce to maybe you know surprise the readers is really highlighting the diversity of Africa. And I think, you know, for your question earlier, that's why we did go hard on cities, and that's why we did choose more unlikely destinations. Um, you know, the unfortunate thing, and I know this is a tagline that gets used over and over again, is that you know Africa is a country which really sort of gives it this very one-dimensional feel, and. I think our job and I think what really motivated us to put this issue together was to really concisely showcase the diversity and even things like, you know, Dakar is only seven hours away, which is something that I sort of knew, but you never really stopped to think about it. It's so much more accessible. And even, you know, I've not been to Dakar, but I've that's where I'm going to go this year. I've already decided, you know, and I think it's it was kind of just opening everybody's eyes to the different experiences, I suppose, that you can have. Yeah. Maybe we could go back, Sherry, you mentioned Luke Bales. Can you tell us a little bit about who is Luke and what is Singita? Luke comes from an old South African family that had wonderful property um, historically. And through the years, they decided to turn some of this property bordering in the Sabi Sands, the very famous Sabi Sands, one Mm. of the best wildlife areas in the world. And they decided to turn that into a tourism destination. And people, you know, have been increasingly doing so simply because it's hard to keep large tracts of land alive, both financially, it's a huge investment, but also you have to partner with local people. You have to get them involved. They have to benefit directly from you having this, the luxury of 
you know, living on this wonderful wild piece of land. So they have to be involved. They have to benefit through jobs. Their communities have to benefit in a, a meaningful way or it's not going to last. So Luke became, you know, vested in that concept at a long, long time ago by cultivating some amazing partners, uh, visionary partners, particularly from America. I was able to create some of the most outstanding properties in Africa. And initially, Singita was known for luxury and for the fact that you would always get your wonderful photographs of the big five, the beautiful leopard, the rhino, the whatever, the wild dogs, the, the, the buffalo, the elephants, all of that. They were always there, always making themselves their guest appearances. So it was a predictable place for tour operators to send clients. They would always get their shots. But increasingly, the effort has been focused on conservation. And now, if you look at the, one of the properties that Traveler focused on in their recent issue in the Grumetti Reserve of the Serengeti, that is a massive, massive, massive reserve. and like 350,000 acres yes, or something and, like that? and it buffers huge community areas. But the, the companies partner with these communities to keep them vested in the conservation ethic. Now, there are huge challenges for them in terms of poaching because not everybody is benefiting through the conservation efforts or through the tourism efforts. But um, they have a, a very impressive presence there, and their attention has gone off luxury accommodation, which is still very much available and of the highest standards you can find in Africa. But at the same time, there's a very, very strong emphasis on involving clients in this conservation mission. So, um, and that's increasingly uh, present, the, the educational factor of, you know, and what we found with clients, and I'm sure Austin sees this too in his travels around Africa, is that people traveling to Africa are looking for more than taking pictures of the big five, the big five being those big mm-hmm. mammal species. But they're looking for a really life-transformative experience. A lot of times when we take people to Africa in the beginning, they're just about the animals. By the second time they go, and almost everyone comes back, they're equally interested in the people, the politics, what's really going on in that country. And, you know, we find, because we live in America half the time, that what we miss, we do miss the elephants in our backyard and the lions roaring outside the kitchen during dinner, but we really miss the people. And there's a kind of connectedness that you have cross-culturally with people that grew up very, very differently than you did, who maybe are a little bit more open and a little bit more, um, what, easy to reach than some of the people that grew up in our society, which kind of you know, is based on separation and higher walls and bigger yards. But people who live together in a very small village in close proximity to each other, somehow there's a different kind of openness. And I find that our clients go back primarily because of those people, not just the animals. Hmm. You know, I was in a, um, hearing you talk about the ways in which people and conservation have to find a way to sort of live together. I had an experience in Kenya last year that, that I, I found interesting. Uh, I was on safari at uh, Oldonio Lodge, um, which is in the Chulu Hills. It's, it's a place that's owned by Derek and Beverly Joubert. And we were on safari one evening and we were out with a Maasai guide and he, we were tracking a couple of cheetahs. And the cheetahs were sort of off to our left and off to our right was a herd of cattle. And it was this situation where there weren't fences and the Maasai herdsmen were having to herd their cattle in the same places where these uh, carnivores live. Um, So we're tracking the cheetahs and then our Maasai guide sort of realizes, well, the cheetahs are tracking the cattle (laughs) and he's suddenly in this tough spot. Like, well, what do I do here? I've got a tourist with me who wants to see a kill. Tourists frequently want to see a kill but I don't want the cheetah killing a cow because that's not how it's supposed to work. And that'll start some conflict amongst between the, the lodge and the, and the, uh, and the Maasai, et cetera. So I had to try to make the point to him that it's okay. I've, you know, I've seen this before. And what's actually more interesting to me is that you're trying to do the right thing. And we're trying to find a way to have the locals live with this economy of tourism and make this work together. And so he sort of slowly drove his truck forward to try to 
block the cheetahs from the cattle while meanwhile his colleagues were on radios trying to call the herdsmen to come and get the cattle away from there and this sort of went on for uh, 45 minutes or so until it was sunset and we had to go back he came you know back how the, it came out he came back the next day and no kill had been made because oh. it was sundown and cheetahs tend to stop hunting Do they? Uh, okay. at night um, but it's just an interesting example of you know in these vast tracts of land like across much of east africa you have to worry about the sort of intersection of wildlife and places of tourism and where locals are trying to make a living. Mm. This is less of an issue, there are other issues, in a place like South Africa where it's more populated and they've sort of chosen this path of, well, in order to make this work, it has to be a more curated experience. And land is fenced off more regularly. Uh, It's a lot of land, so you don't feel like you're in a box. But it's an interesting sort of contrast about different ways of, sort of trying to manage those wildlife experiences for the tourism trade. Two yeah. economies kind of butting up against yeah. each other. Well, that, that's a great segue to the story that we have on an area of central Kenya called like Hippia. Sophie Roberts reported this story for us. And initially, she was looking to cover a number of properties. They're private properties or ranches owned by mainly wealthy Europeans. You have Johann Zeitz, who is the founder of Puma, who was also opening the Museum of Contemporary Art in Cape Town this year. Wildenstein, the, uh, Alec Wildenstein, who runs uh, his parents' estate in Lycipia. Beautiful uh, homes that you can rent. And this gives you access to a kind of a more personal, more like rough around the edges um, experience of the landscape and of the wildlife. But as we were going to press, there were a couple of incidents around the edges of this territory in which cattle herders who have this sort of agreement with the property owners to graze their cattle were pushed off the land. In one case, a house was burned down, nothing that was in our story, thankfully, but, you know, not terribly far from it. And then there was another incident a couple of weeks later, and we had this decision to make, like, what do we do with this story? Because it's an area that clearly has um, some hot zones around the edges. We decided to go ahead with it, but to be transparent about, you know, this actually brought to life the very issues that Austin is describing sort of playing out in real time, which is you need to have this coexistence between landowners, managers, ranchers, all the stakeholders sort of all have to be in agreement to have a place that is is safe and welcome to tourism. So I actually, I was glad that we stuck with the story since then, as far as I know, nothing has happened, but it was just like, it was fascinating to watch it play out in real time and to have to make that decision about is this a place that we feel good about, you know, recommending. Well, and one of the things I think that's important about bringing that up is that, you know, in this part of the world, sort of really ugly things happen all the time. But we know about those mm-hmm. things at the same time as knowing about all the sort of normal things that happen all the time. So unfortunately, as you know, as the international page in the New York Times has shrunk and there's less and less room for news from that part of the world, there's only room for things like Ebola. So thankfully, though, you've got social media, you've got the internet, you've got all kinds of other things out there through which people can get, if they're curious enough, they can get stories and educate themselves about other things that are going on. You know, it's very easy in this part of the world to sort of say this horrible thing happened, but there's also this good thing happened or this, you know, normal thing happening. And I think that's, you know, part of what we're trying to do with the Everyday Africa Project is show that, you know, I know that all you ever get on the front page of the news is Ebola and the last coup and the current famine, but there's a lot of other stuff happening all the time. And it's important to try to get some of that news out there too. I'm curious how you guys as media makers of sorts think about this because when we're talking about places, you just talked about the dance we do between, you know, where does our coverage go? Does it go wherever the story leads? Does it sort of stop? Do we try to create a safe space, a safe space like a loaded topic these days? Because you know a couple of things are going on. Number one, we we serve a diversity of travelers, right? There are some people who want to be more edgy. They want to kind of go to that place that's not completely buttoned up yet, where there is more risk of one kind or another, whether it's the risk of just not having facilities or infrastructure or literal physical risk. I mean, there are people who climb mountains and so forth, which is a different kind of physical risk. So that's appealing to some people. And then other people are not ready for that. So 
you know, I'm wondering two things. One, how much of that equation enters your minds as you're thinking about the coverage and shaping the coverage? And then second, do you feel like people these days are a little bit more open to the real story or really want to know kind of what's going on and are not afraid to see the complexity of the picture don't need it sugar-coated for them because they actually want you know we talk about this a lot authenticity is something that people actually travel for experiences are what they travel for how does that play into um, the coverage that we do or the ways we talk about these places I mean, I think, you know, there's always, first of all, I think you have to give the reader some amount of credit in terms of them deciding what feels right or wrong for them. Um, we have to do our due diligence all of the time. I mean, we can't completely gloss over a situation that might be inherently dangerous. But I also think, I mean, I speak to this as being part of a travel magazine as opposed to, you know, Vanity Fair is a different type of publication. But we actually do have a responsibility to promote a positive image of travel. It's not just about the place we're promoting. It's, I mean, it is about the place we're promoting. But that's part of our responsibility, I think. We coexist being part of the travel world, but also part of the media world. So I think people do look to us to safely and responsibly, because of course we would never sort of ignore or mute something that people should be mindful of. But they do look to us for reassurance of you know, being able to do it in a certain way or, 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 or a confidence factor in going somewhere. But again, it comes down to people our readers being informed partly from us, but partly from their own instincts and what they feel more comfortable in. And I mean, there are, there are a lot of people that, you know, I went into places in, uh, speaking about Africa, I went into, you know, places in Kampala, which I felt I would never recommend somebody go to. Uh, but that's just because it was, you know, and I know you and I have, Sherry, you and I have spoken We love about, Kampala. <laughs> you love, well, I, I, I like it in a very different way from, from you, but I, I, I think I would be a little more hesitant to recommend it and to certain people than perhaps yourself would be. But yeah, I think it's just about finding that balance. Well, I feel like the key is transparency. Mm. You know, Ethiopia isn't for everyone. And I tried to convey that. Dakar isn't for everybody. And I think we tried to convey that. But I also think to your second question that there is a greater appetite for edge and adventure, particularly among millennial travelers. Bragging rights, you know, Instagram helps that. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. look where I was last right. weekend, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so I think so long as we're honest and we're clear, then to Aaron's point, the reader can make up his or her own mind. But the Lycibia story was sort of like an example of that in motion where if we, we're not going to like sweep it under the rug, we're just going to be clear about what the stakes are, which frankly changes all the time from press time to three months later when you might read it. But, you know, so. I, I also think that people's perception is changing about what's dangerous and what's safe and that people are, because of the prevalence of social media, the fact people are becoming more aware of how dangerous things are in their backyard. You know, I have people call me, one of our bases is in Colorado, say, but I'm worried about going to Africa. Isn't it dangerous? And I said, well, have you been to a movie theater recently in Colorado? <laughs> uh, do you drive your car on the freeway? Right. Statistically, any of the safari countries in Africa, it's probably the safest place you can be. The chances of you being killed by an animal in Africa, in safari Africa, by that I mean east and southern, are almost zero. I mean, they're very, very small. It's much, much more dangerous. I was rear-ended by a truck in a taxi on my way to the studio (laughs) today. So this is a dangerous place. So I think perspective is changing. Um, We do see what what Alex is talking about in that people are calling us and switching from going to Europe, canceling their Paris vacation because they want to go where it's safe. They want to go to Africa. I think Ebola, in an odd way, helped our case in terms of explaining the geography of Africa to people. There was so much news about Ebola. It was a terrible, terrible moment in African history, but it was a tiny little part of Africa that's very hard to reach. And in fact, all the planes that were flying in and out of that region were coming from America and Europe. None of the planes from Southern Africa or East Africa were going there. So you had a lot better chance of contracting Ebola in New York or Paris 
than you did by going to Nairobi. So people are becoming slowly more educated. And the other thing that I see happening is that the model of tourism is changing. And it really has to become, to be sustainable, more of a partnership with local people. So what we define as safari historically is beyond that now. There are genuine interactions by the best lodges with local people. And there's a genuine, involving partnership that has no resemblance at all to the colonial history of safari. So there are so many changes going on. The continent is changing rapidly. There are places that we talk people out of going regularly. Cameroon, Central African Republic. I mean, I love them, but I'm not going to send everyone there. And part of what we do is try to get the pulse and, you know, it's almost like a Rorschach test for what do you really consider to be exciting and what is, what's too far for you. So it's all changing. The mix is changing really fast. One of the other things that you guys talk about in the issue is an emerging creative class or a growing, a burgeoning creative class. Austin, it seems like you're tapping into this. This is something that must be close to everyday Africa's heart. Can you talk a little bit about the things that you're seeing there? The photography coming out of Africa now is, is I mean, it's just exploding. It's, a, it's an exciting thing to see. I'm really thrilled to see that the magazine put this portrait by Omar Victor Diop on the cover. You know, he's a, a wonderful Senegalese photographer, and the continent is full of many more people like that. And one of the things that we've tried to do with Everyday Africa is to tap into some of that by, you know, it started with a couple of American guys who were on assignment in Ivory Coast, who started to use their cell phone cameras to try to take snapshots of regular life, not just the refugees they were interviewing. But since then, we have really expanded, and most of the photographers now are African, and they're from all over the place. There's a couple in Addis, there's some in Cape Town, there's some in Lagos and Dakar, and they're all over the place. And they are doing this amazing job on the Everyday Africa platform, but also in media outlets across the continent, in Western media as well. They're doing a great job of showing what life is like where they live. And that's one of the great things I think about the, you know, speaking of other platforms and other ways to get news and information from places. It's one of the great things about something like Instagram. You know, it's kind of like a film strip. You've got all these pictures flowing by. And so it's not just seeing the one picture of the scary thing or the one picture of the beautiful thing, frankly. Because, you know, when I talk to high school kids about what's the first thing you think of when I say Africa, it usually starts somewhere near AIDS or Ebola and finishes near the Lion King. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, part of the stereotype is not just war and conflict and disease. It's also pretty pictures of elephants in sunsets. Um, and there's a lot more to life there. And so you, you go on the Instagram feed, whether it's Everyday Africa or any number of Instagram feeds, and you can see that, okay, there is a photograph here of someone who's maybe having a hard time, who's a refugee, who is suffering from some kind of other problem, but next to it, there's a photograph of someone who's going to the store or having a meal with some friends in a restaurant or is going to work. And there's a way to capture that stuff that is interesting and beautiful and can really be informative about what life is really like in this, this, these parts of the world. And what you find is for most of the people, most of the time, it's a lot like our lives. Mm. And it's interesting too, because you're seeing this all over the world as well, which is that, you know, as we've said, Africa is a gigantic place. These are all very different. We think of it perhaps, or some people think of it as, you know, sort of a monolithic thing, but you're talking about people spread out over tremendous cultures and geographies, but social media can provide a platform, not just for sharing and communication, but for encouragement, for challenging, you know, the, when a sort of creative group of people get together, there's often a competition that happens that is both Absolutely. friendly and, and, and also inspiring, people mm -hmm. inspiring each other. And it's not just among the creatives, I think. It's also among the people who are following those creatives. You know, what we find on the Instagram platform is you'll have someone post a photograph. That, there's a photograph that Nana Kofi Akwa, one of our photographers in, in, in Ghana, took once. It's a picture of one of his kids, or two of his kids, looking at his iPad. And you see the glow of the iPad on their face. And someone in the commentary says, oh, are there iPads in Ghana? <laughs> And it starts this long conversation, this back and forth of like, well, wait a second, why are you asking that? What's your, why do you think that that's unusual? And it's this fascinating, so it's not just between the photographers, but also the people who are following get into these arguments and these conversations about, you know, 
what's going on in these parts of the world? Is that unusual? Should we be questioning it or not? And it's this kind of fascinating sort of look into perception and misperception. One of the things that occurred to me and that I think a couple of us have been talking about in the in the office is that the way the coverage sort of shaped up, the way it took shape, which seems to follow a lot of these trends and patterns, it almost feels like Africa is kind of on the cusp of being a destination continent, the way you used to do your sort of grand tour of Europe, and that was how you became acculturated. It's so diverse. It's so It's got so much going on, so many rich cultures. Is that something that you guys thought about? I hadn't thought about it like that, but I'm thinking about one itinerary that we did that was meant to sort of explode the traditional trip that Americans would take where they go to Cape Town, so you'd see the city, and then you go to the winelands, and you go on safari, and then you go to a beach, but you would be all contained in South Africa. And now, because travel is easier, and because there are new properties in countries that will sort of draw you there, we exploded that model, and uh, this Erin can speak to it because it was her story. But we start in Cape Town, you do your safari in Zimbabwe, and you go to the beach in Mozambique. And so, in a way, yes, I suppose there is that paradigm of like the grand tour of highlights of different countries, you know, within a certain region um, that are a bit unexpected. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that what that trip was designed to do was, yes, of course, take it out of the context of just South Africa and, 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 and flesh it out to different countries. But it was also supposed to be a sort of, look, you can do these trips to Africa that are really ticking all of these touch points of, you know, be it the beach or be it nature. You know, you're going to get this m- amazing urban and city experience when you go to Cape Town. So I think that was kind of the biggest draw. And then going back to something that Alex mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, you know, Africa is progressing so quickly with all of this uh, new and rapidly developing infrastructure like airports, like roads uh, or, or, or highways that are sort of easier for the Western driver maybe to navigate. It's more accessible than ever. So there, in that regard, you know. Africa's opening up to us. What about, uh, you mentioned Cape Town, Johannesburg. Yeah, so actually it's quite interesting because we went back and forth and I think to an extent we will always go back and forth on <laughs> Johannesburg. Um, we, we, there was definitely two schools of thought. Um, you know, Johannesburg is one of those interesting characters of a city because it's always sort of been there, but you've never really known how to uh, how to approach it or if you even should approach it at all from a, a traveler's point of view. And, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that compared to years past, Johannesburg is is safer than it's been. Um, there's, you know, new developments going on in the inner city, which is making that more accessible than it's ever been. Is it Cape Town? It isn't Cape Town. But it's. But you argue that it's almost more vibrant. Sure. Yeah. I mean, maybe more colorful, but, you know, colorful is a very subjective word to use uh, when describing a city. Uh, I, you know, I I definitely think that if you want to get that sort of raw, really alluring energy of a city, Johannesburg would probably be the city for you. I I agree, Erin. I think that it's it's like. to me, the analogy is San Francisco, New York, Cape Town being the San Francisco of South Africa and Johannesburg being the New York. You know, it's a grittier city. It's, I mean, not that Cape Town doesn't have its gritty side. It's less refined. It's, um, it's just more raw. And it's, it's um, you can definitely get in a lot of trouble there. You have to know where you're going. But it's also incredibly stimulating. And... I think the history of South Africa and the, the the dark side of the history of the South Africa is really in your face in Johannesburg. You know, you can go to Constitution Hall, you can go to the Apartheid Museum and have a full immersion into what apartheid was really about and how ugly it really was and just be shocked that that happened during your lifetime. Um, but at the same time, there are all these art centers in the downtown area that used to be an absolute no-go zone. And um, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of art there. There is music there. It's harder to access than it is in West Africa, really. It's harder to find it. Sebastian, who's um, not here today, but who's lived in Africa, or spent time there anyway, um, and is a musician, said that Johannesburg was great. Mm-hmm. But he had a kind of inside track. 
Right. He said the music was terrific. The musicians were great. They were very welcoming. But he, as a musician, kind of had a path into that that's not necessarily accessible to everybody. But if you can get it, the rewards are tremendous. I hope there's something in your book about that, Austin. <laughs> Inside track on music. <laughs> well, there, there's, there, is, there are definitely photographs of music, that's for sure. I mean, I think, I think that's kind of true anywhere, you know, if you can get an inside track. Right. I mean, I was in Johannesburg sort of on my own once and touring around and kind of felt like I was a little bit off in the wilderness. And not, I mean, this is years ago, but trying to find my way and, and, and felt like very much like an outsider. And then I spent a, an evening with Rian Milan, mm-hmm. uh, a writer yeah. uh, from South Africa, who sort of took me along for an evening to a couple of parties and restaurants. And suddenly I felt like I was in the most sophisticated place I'd ever been. So, um, I mean, that's that can be true wherever you are. Yeah. It's also interesting, you just mentioned confronting the history of apartheid in Johannesburg. And it felt to me in reading the pieces in the package that Africa's got a lot of this going on where there's a confrontation with history that's very open and very honest and very accessible. We, sort of one of the little sidebars in the Rwanda piece um, was called Save a Day for Kigali. And one of the reasons is that the museum about the genocide is actually really great. And it's very, you know, sort of accessible and open, which I thought was kind of a model for, you know, um, we don't always do such a great job of that here in the United States, confronting the sort of darker periods of our history. Mm. So that seemed really interesting, too. On the more practical side of things, just as we kind of wind it down, in the package, in several places, we talk about the fact that some parts of traveling to Africa are easier, or different parts of Africa, are easier to kind of do yourself than others. We've done whole podcasts on this and I'm a huge enthusiast um, as we are at Traveler but a good guide is always a helpful thing so you can almost never go wrong but in this case there are some places it seems like that are it's really it's really just a really good idea to try to get some help with planning and booking what are the places where it's really most useful to kind of reach out and get some help I mean Sherry is probably the most equipped at this table to speak about this but I mean I would say your default, if you're especially going to Sub-Saharan Africa and it's your first time, is you you shouldn't be ashamed or, or, or embarrassed or, or doubtful about asking for help from somebody who knows it. It is, is a different territory. It's not an accessible territory, but it is. And you do need to know somebody that has the logistics down because those are hard things to juggle. And frankly, they're hard things just for, you know, both hard and soft infrastructure points are, are difficult to do when you're in the States and you're trying to liaise with somebody who is not a tour operator, but is managing the hotel or a safari or whatever um, over in Kenya or Tanzania or Zimbabwe, wherever it might be. So I think, you know, the default is certainly look for the company that's going to help you best achieve what you want to do. I mean, we're big supporters of the a travel specialists at the magazine. I mean, they can turn a good trip into a great trip or they can turn what could be a potential totally. disastrous trip. Especially when your time is limited. And that's you what want, you want. You want deep knowledge. You want access. You want ease. You want it done right. And even when I was going to Addis, I declined the guide that was offered to me by the tour operator. And then as the date was approaching, I thought, well, hold on. <laughs> I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I don't know. And I got a friend of a friend who knows the city well, who's lived there for five years to take me around. And that's a guide as well. So, I mean, there are experienced, trained, paid guides. And then there are those people who just know a place deeply. And I would advocate that completely. Yeah. And there are places where, as Sherry says, you get into a lot of trouble if you don't, you know, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know. Right. So, um I think absolutely a guide can help help you have the best experience and the most connected and insider experience. Well, you know what I what I have experiencing more and more is as the millennials travel, people call us and they are, as you said, Aaron, almost apologizing for calling us. You know, I have I always plan my own travel. I never have called an operator before, a specialist before, but I'm looking online and I can't tell what's what. And it's true. I mean, we pride ourselves. We've been Connie Nast Traveler Specialists for 15 years since the award was created. And we are objective advisors. That's what we are. And unlike all the millions of fabulous websites you see online, we will tell you, no, I know that looks like a great 
great, great lodge, and there is this giant migration moving there, or there are gorillas on the steps of this place, or, or whatever. But that never happens in February. <laughs> so they're going to want you to come there. They're not going to tell you that because they want you in that bed that night. They want you paying that fee for that room, and that's their down season. So to gain that kind of objectivity and the understanding of the incredibly complex seasonality, which is different between Botswana and Zambia, even though they're virtually bordering each other, takes a really long time. So to, to get an advisor is not a bad idea. And then there is, as Alex says, that issue of potentially getting yourself into seriously deep water. So you, you want an advisor who will hold your hand and knows the ropes. Great. Listen, thanks to all of you guys for coming and, and doing the podcast today. The issue is absolutely beautiful. It is our April issue, Condé Nast Traveler. It is uh, Into Africa is the official title of the, we don't really do that, but that's what it says on the cover. And you really have to read it. There are actual, really useful, in addition to being beautiful, there are, in the front of the book, there are actual itineraries for some of the places that we've just talked about. Go here for three or four days, go here for 14 days, go here for six or seven days. It's very practical, and yet at the same time, it's super inspiring. Um, this is the kind of thing that you really need to pick up because these are all dream trips. You're going to want to make every one of them. And I don't say that at the end of podcasts. <laughs> I really don't. Um, Very no, it, it's 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 really there it's really so terrific. Many. Yeah, there are so many. It feels almost I almost don't know where to start. <laughs> but pick up the issue this month. It's great. And also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. Visit us, of course, on cntraveler.com where we also have plenty of uh, Africa content for you to look at and to inspire you for this. We're at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And please do tweet at us, send us feedback, review us on iTunes. We have been looking at that. We've been responding to the feedback. It's terrific. And um, why don't we go around, tell people where they can get in touch with you, Alex, on the social media. On the social media, my or, anywhere, or anywhere. My David, David is, gives his his like postal phone number. No. Whenever David's on, he gives his like postal address. My handle for virtually every platform is Word Mover because that's what I do during the day. That is I what move, you do. I, I move love words your around. It's great at Word Mover, and it's so distinctive. <laughs> Sherry, the best way to get a hold of us is through our website. Really. Our Instagram goes in and out because sometimes half the year I'm kind of off the grid. But so um, I would just say just go to our website. It's exploreinc.com. Exploreinc.com. Mm -hmm. Great. And Austin. Well, the, I guess the best place to go is to the Instagram feed, uh, which is at Everyday Africa, and you can also email us at Africa at EverydayProjects.org. Does that mean you have more coming? Oh, there are hundreds of everyday projects. Oh my God! Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. Oh, wow. oh they're Latin all the America, good ones. Asia. <laughs> wow. That's the next issue. And your book is coming out when? The book is published by Kira Verlag, which is a German publisher, and it will be out in early May. Okay, look for that at your bookstore. It's called Everyday Africa. Everyday Africa. You can okay. find it on Amazon now. Yeah. Easy enough. Aaron, you can find me on my Instagram handle, which is just Aaron underscore Florio. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Thanks to all of you for coming and thanks for tuning in. I'm at Bradrick. Have a great weekend. Bye.